episode 123, Ideal vs. Reality About New Grads. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're Dr. Mohamed Ramawi Perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards nominated host as we get a behind the curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Thanks for tuning in again. At this point, a few minisodes have dropped. What are your opinions? I want to know. I've got quite a bit already on the docket. I had taken that trip to Laoyang and saw the peony flowers and some tulips and the Shaolin Temple. And so whenever you listen to the minisodes, there were a lot of episodes recorded on that because of some long train rides. So uh, absolutely beautiful. Some stunning photos, I think, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, post those on Instagram, a little bit on Facebook. So again, follow along if you'd like to see these. We got two testimonials for you today one from a dr jonathan so i really like how you're expanding the uh the spectrum of doctors you know uh, i know you had a pharmacist on other fellow chiropractors i know you have an optometrist that's going to be on so i'm excited i'm a fan I, I look forward to subscribing to a doctor's perspective podcast and i'm going to read this one it's from a katie joy b usa she said dr trosclair and his stellar guests shine the brightest of lights on what it means to follow your own path as a doctor and in life. Bold, insightful, and engaging are just a few of the words I'd use to describe the time you'll spend with him. You'll get tons of actionable advice and tangible tips, but you also get heaps of inspiration from truly engaging individuals that have been where you are and want to see you succeed. Thanks for putting out such a superb show, Dr. Trosclair. Keep up the great work. Y'all, that just makes me want to say, please take a second and do some more reviews. I'm beaming. I'm smiling. It's exciting. You may not know what it's like. Put out these shows and you don't really hear a lot back sometimes. And then when you do, you're like, okay, cool. This is what I'm doing it for. At least one person out there is really benefiting from this. <laughs> While out in Shanghai, I gave a presentation on ankylosing spondylitis. That was a good opportunity, good experience. Uh, hopefully that will set me up to do a few more talks uh, in different places, uh, orthopedic hospitals or uh, these other type of hospitals. A lot of places here, they'll, they'll have these conferences that will kind of promote the hospital based on whatever they do. So they get a bunch of people that have some sort of specialty in whatever it is that they do. And then they have a presentation and they get people to come and really explore that topic in more detail. So it was a good time. But today's show on Six Weeks of Feet, we got Dr. Mohammed Ramawi. He is less than a year out of residency, and we're going to discuss what's like being an academic and worried about like evidence-based. And then when you come out in reality, and you're like, dude, I'm the best at surgery, you know, plantar fasciitis and ankle sprains. Like, I'm really good at this stuff. This is what I trained for. And then realizing your patients are like, yeah, aren't you all good at this? Okay, well, how do I differentiate myself compared to everybody else? Especially in a place like New York City, where there's a lot of competition between orthopedics and um, other podiatrists for that matter. So we'll talk about that. Uh, his big thing is surgical cases, like I said, sports injuries, plantar fasciitis, ankle sprains. Uh, we'll also talk about Instagram. You know, are we, is he a fan of the surgery posts or does he want more educational? And then near the end of the interview, we discussed barefoot running, minimalist shoes. That was a popular thing. It's still kind of popular. So he'll give his opinion on that. And then if you do decide to do it, he'll give you some recommendations on how to start that so you don't get stress fractures. That's a pretty big one. And also, we kind of go through a little bit on on qualifications. You know, if you went to school and you're just single and had all the time in the world to study versus someone who had a family to take care of at the same time, uh, what, what kind of opportunities should they have? Should you look at the GPA as hard? Different topics like that. So it's great to get a perspective of a new grad 
what's the ideal, what we think should happen. And then when you hit the real world, things are different. And then shifting and to meet that reality. By the way, before we start, uh, at the end of the interview, we got a new commercial. And we have definitely upgraded the support page. So .NET slash support. And we're working on a few other changes. Like now I have, if you go to the site, live chat. So if you have any questions on products, the podcast, anything, send me a message on there. And I will get back to you as soon as I can. All the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash one, two, three, as well as the transcripts. Don't forget, we got transcripts now. Again, they're going to be grammatically wrong a little bit. They're going to have some kind of weird flow. I am just not going to spend the time to fix all the AI mistakes that may have be there. Unless you guys and gals let me know like, oh, it's really annoying. I was trying to read it and I can't. You know, maybe it'd be worth some time or some money to get somebody else to fix that for me. I've thought about packaging up as a PDF if anybody wants those. Let me know what your thoughts are. All right, that's enough. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China in Brooklyn, New York. Today on the podcast, we've got a doctor of podiatry. He is a super trained in all the surgery type of stuff. And he's going to fit just right in our podcast series because nobody's really talked a lot about surgery. And I'm excited to just pick his brain and, and learn more about him. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Mohammed Rimawi. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I appreciate you having me here. Oh, this would be good. Uh, you look like you're somewhat of a young guy, so I don't think you have like 20 years experience, which is good, I think, right? <laughs> Unless you're talking about life. Yeah, I got 20 in, in life, but in, in, in the med field, not yet, no. You know, there's some people who's like, oh, I only want to see these people that have been around for 30 years. And you got the other crowd that's like, actually, I kind of want someone who's kind of sub, sub eight, sub 10. That way I've got all the latest and greatest gadgets and surgery techniques and they learned it in school and all that stuff. So Absolutely. There's lots of professions you could have picked, and then there's lots of specialties that I've learned now in podiatry, especially watching mm -hmm. Instagram videos of like surgeries. You're like, oh my gosh, what you guys yep. can do is incredible. So how did you fall into this field? Sure, sure. It's, it's actually a pretty interesting story, I think. So my, my whole life, I grew up playing sports, and uh, when I realized I wasn't going to make a profession out of sports, I, I dwelled into the medical field. And the one field that caught my eye was actually orthopedic surgery. That was my intention, full throttle. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I just I was infatuated with what they do, uh, especially towards the foot and ankle. And uh, the more I, I went through college and realized the path to get to orthopedic surgery is kind of gruesome, right? So you have to go to medical school. After you do medical school, you have to score a certain score on uh, the step exams, and that places you into a specific residency. So it's not guaranteed that just because you go through med school, you're going to get your orthopedic residency or your general surgery or dermatology or anesthesiology. You have to really place within that uh, score range to get there. And then after that, it takes about five years to become an orthopedic surgeon to be finished with residency. And if you want to be specifically a foot and ankle orthopedic surgeon, you have to do a year fellowship nowadays. That's becoming the, the norm. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a long process. And for someone who was like the oldest child of his family, I, I didn't really have that luxury. And then my junior year of college, I believe it was, someone introduced me to podiatry. And at the time, I, I didn't know much about the field. You know, I, I didn't think anything of podiatry. I thought it was just like a day-to-day -day care, a chiropathy kind of thing um, until I did my research on it and was fascinated by the things they do. I mean, anything lower extremity, we're, we're trained and licensed to do. So I just thought it was a, a, a better route for me to take. Uh, and uh, thus far, I, it's been proven to be effective. Well, I agree with you. 
because I really didn't know much about podiatry either. And then one time in Colorado, this guy was becoming, I guess, fellowship trained in surgery or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think too much of it. And I was like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> podiatry did surgery at all at that point. And I was like, wow, this guy's like top echelon. And then now I'm realizing, no, they all learn it. It's just a matter of how deep you're going to go into that and if you're going to specialize in it. So being that you had the orthopedic desire, did you see the, some of the surgeries and like, oh, yeah, it's time to go all in on this? Oh, absolutely. You know, ortho, I, I have a... The orthopedic world and the podiatry world are always at odds, you know, especially in New York. I mean, the orthopedists here don't really like us much. Uh, they're always trying to limit what we do and how far we advance in the field. But I, I really have nothing uh, against orthopedists. I think they're well-trained. They, I'm very fascinated with the way they practice medicine and do surgery. But realistically speaking, skill-wise and training-wise, when it comes to anything foot and ankle related, uh, podiatrists are just as trained. I mean, when I was doing my residency, I trained with some of uh, the best surgeons I've ever seen. I also got the chance to train with some orthopedic surgeons from the Rothman Institute, and they showed nothing but love, honestly. Uh, a couple of the surgeons would kind of just sit back and let us do these cases while they just sit back and critique. So there was this mutual respect developing. Um, New York is not there yet, per se, but I, I hope to get there. But as far as like skill wise and, and training wise and diagnosis and things we can treat, I think we're pretty subpar with the orthopedic community. Well, and then so the podiatry, it's what what what's the uh, breakdown of the schooling and then like yeah. a fellowship or a specialty? Sure. Sure. So podiatry is four years of schooling. Uh, the first two years are your clinical rotation, clinical uh subjects. And then you take a board exam, which is uh, across the country. If you pass that, you move on to your third and fourth year, which is more clinical rotations. You're spending time in the clinic, you're rotating through different areas of podiatry, whether it be, you know, surgery, medicine, and so forth. And then after your four years, you do your residency. And the residency really dictates what kind of podiatrist you're about to be. So if you go to every residency in America now, it has to be a surgical residency. But the volume varies and the type of cases you do vary. I trained at two different programs. The first program I went to did reconstructive cases and also did your elective cases. So they were very, very proficient in bunion cases and hammer toes and uh, flat foot cases. The next two years I spent was in uh, Jefferson Health in Philadelphia, and that was all trauma. I mean, we, we did more trauma than we did elective cases. Again, that's three-year residency really will dictate where you go. Now, if you feel like you didn't get enough in residency, enough exposure, or you want to just further take your training to another level, there are fellowships that are offered. And those fellowships tend to have their own niche, whether it be trauma, such as the program I trained on, we had a trauma fellowship, or it could be reconstructive, or it could be sports medicine, it could be wound care. There's so many different areas you could really specialize in. And at that point, you would have already spent this much time rotating and doing all these things. And you usually at this point realize like, I am not cutting off toes. Not my, not my thing, but I can debreed some nails and definitely help like the wound care or something like that. And like, that's your slick. So that's what you just go in, like get super trained yeah, in. It, it's tough. You, you say that, right? So this is the beauty of having someone young, right? Coming in. So when you come out, I, I trained very, very proficiently in trauma, you know, ankle fractures, calcaneal fractures, Liz Franks. That, that was my thing in, in training. And you come out thinking that, yeah, I'm going to put my skills to use. But in all reality, when you first come out of residency, you have to be uh, trained in everything mm-hmm. because it's not going to be, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see Muhammad. He's the trauma guy. No, it's I'm just going to see Muhammad. He's the podiatrist. So you ha- to develop your niche, I'm starting to realize takes time. You know, it, it's just going to take time. And the, the 
the doctor who trained me, when he first started, he was doing wound care um, until people started to realize, you know, he was very proficient in traumatic surgery. And now all he does is trauma. So the reality is, as much as you want to say, I'm going to be a surgical practice or I'm going to be a wound care practice or I'm going to be a non-operative practice, whatever it may be, to establish that is going to take some time unless you step into a situation where that's already given to you. So what's your job outlook? Is it because I've been talking to people in the United Kingdom and in Australia and you know, this one lady had like nine clinics on her own and stuff. But for yourself, can you work in a hospital? Do you have to be private practice? And then, like you said, could you find a podiatry clinic that's looking for a surgical guy? And they're like, we got everything else covered. We just need somebody to do surgeries more often. Yep. And you can just step into that? Absolutely. All, all three questions, yes, yes, and yes. Ah, okay. The hospital jobs are pretty tough to get, at least in the Northeast, because that's where most of my research was done. It's because, you know, when someone gets a hospital, it's, it's, it tends to be a, a very decent uh, job because it's it's a salary, benefits, pension, the whole nine yards. Uh, and they usually- I ain't have, leaving. I got the job. I'm never leaving this yeah, place. Yeah. I'm, oh, I'm not leaving. And, and, you know, no pun intended, but it's true because a lot of these people who have hospital gigs stay there 20, 30 years. So, you know, as much as residents want to come out and say, yeah, I'm going to get a hospital job, chances are they already have, you know, three podiatrists on staff and with all 10 plus years experience. It's not as easy as you think to get a hospital job, but you couldn't go a hospital route. Another route people try to go to is multi-specialty, right? So they have these clinics that have all types of specialists, cardiologists, primary care, orthopedics, and now they want someone who's a podiatrist. Uh, that tends to be a very high volume uh, scenario because you have all these specialists and they usually refer within each other. Mm-hmm. So now you're getting everybody's foot and ankle cases and uh, it can be overwhelming, but for experience wise, it's pretty, pretty decent. And then there's an orthopedic uh, gig. So if you, you can work for an orthopedic group and depending what state you're in dictates what kind of cases they give you. So I feel like in Pennsylvania, the orthopedic group will tend to give you everything foot and ankle related. You know, they just don't want to deal with it. That's yours. Have it. Have fun. If you're in Padage, if you're in New York, you're going to tend to get the bunions and midfoot cases and nothing else. You know, they're going to stick with their orthopedic guys for the ankle and, and rear foot cases. Uh, and then the last but not least is private practice, right? So private practice can differ on the size of the practice. The situation I've stepped into was only a single practitioner. So for the most part, he's giving me all the surgeries, but it's a wide variety of pathologies and cases that I have to work up. You could go into a bigger private practice where everyone's sharing the load, whether it be rotating through hospital calls or uh, double scrubbing patients and so forth. So there's a lot of different areas uh, you can step into coming out of residency. It depends what's best for you and ideal for your situation. Okay. And you already answered. I was going to ask you, where are you at? But you've already just answered it. So that's good. What are you finding that some of the most common concerns patients have or some of the cases that you really enjoy and see the best results with so far? Being in New York, a lot of people put a lot of miles on their feet, and the footwear in New York isn't the most supportive. Unfortunately, you know, men have to wear dress shoes to work, and women have to wear high heels and flats. So I see a lot of plantar fasciitis in my office. It's one of the most common reasons people visit a podiatry office. And plantar fasciitis is an inflammation of the, you know, ligamentous type structure on the bottom of your foot. And it can be really aggravating, you know, especially in the acute phase. But the beauty of plantar fasciitis is about 95% of people get better with conservative measures alone. And podiatry or just medicine in general has developed the algorithm for treatment, which tends to be successful. The problem is that algorithm applied to different people works in different timetables. So someone may get better within a couple of weeks. Someone, it could take up to six months before they see the positive effects. So it could be frustrating at times, but it's a conversation you have 
with the patient day one. Like, hey, I've seen people recover in weeks. I've seen people recover in months, you know, so don't be shocked if, if you're on the latter part of it or the earlier. It can happen. As far as what I find most satisfying is uh, sports-related injuries. Uh, I'm big on sports. I love sports. And being someone who's been injured multiple times, uh, when someone comes in with an ankle sprain or Achilles tendonitis or Achilles ruptures and so forth, I love working those up because I can kind of foresee what's going to happen if you neglect it. So I, I, I give a patient like the whole spiel from the beginning, like, hey, uh, we're going to take you out of commission for a little bit, but this is a longevity project. We want to make sure that you're 100% a year from now. So we're going to sacrifice this time frame so you're optimal later on. Uh, and if patients tend to stick to the protocol from uh, you know, treatment to physical therapy, they tend to be at the same level, if not better, depending on the injury they sustained. Do you do in-house rehab? Are you all trained in that part of it as well? No, no. So some, some podiatrists here in New York will do what's called passive uh, physical therapy. Mm-hmm. So they'll do ultrasound therapy with electrical stimulation and whatnot. I, I, I don't do that per se. I, physical therapists, I have a lot of admiration for them. They put in the work in school. They have the right training. Uh, they're equipped with all different types of modalities. So when I think someone needs physical therapy, I tend to refer them out just because it, you know, it's not in my realm to do so. We did rotate through physical therapy during school, and we have an idea of what they do and what it's about. But as far as doing it in my in my clinic or practice, I, I just tend not to. Uh, that's understandable. Sometimes it's just it's not worth the effort when you can just yeah, do, yeah, do it, it full time all the time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's that's exactly my train of thought. Like you know, and patients sometimes they want to stay with you. Hey, can you can you offer that? But in reality, if it was a family member, I would want them to see a specialist. Like, hey, how about you see someone who does this for a living, you know? Especially athletes. Like, what, what sport did you play? So I played uh, basketball in high school, and uh, I was pretty decent, actually. But uh, chronic ankle sprains really uh, was detrimental to my career. So that's why it hits home when I see patients who have sports-like injuries. And I love working them up. And it, it's like a GI doctor with the GI problems. Mm-hmm. So if someone is a GI doc and they themselves have irritable bowel syndrome or celiac disease, it becomes very relatable to the patient. And I think the patient can appreciate that. So for me, when I have a patient with ankle injuries or list frank injuries or whatnot, uh, I hope that the patient gets a sense like, oh, man, this, he's not talking just from medical knowledge, but he's talking from experience as well. Is there much that y'all can do if there's not... Uh... I guess a podiatry, what grade is it that y'all is bread and butter with sprained ankles? So I'm thinking, yeah, you, you tweak it, there's a little bit of bruising, let's go to PT. Is it more like when it's torn, like grade, I go with three or four, is it ripping off the bone mm-hmm. or is it really, really bad? Is that when the podiatry is the best option? Uh, podiatry is always the safest option. I, so my big thing is preaching that you should always see a podiatrist or if you'd like an orthopedist, even for a grade one ankle sprain. It shouldn't be neglected. Ligaments, they're, they're very strong structures, right? The, the idea that uh, a, a soft tissue structure's responsibility is to maintain two bones together at all times throughout your various movements, it's astonishing, right, that this small structure can do so. Yeah, forever. So if you sprained it, yeah, and if you sprained it, that means you did damage to yourself. And a lot of people, and I was guilty of this as well, you sprain your ankle and you kind of just keep going, right? You, you shake it off, walk it off, or you tighten your shoes and you call it a day. But the reality is once you damage a ligament, the soft tissue that replaces that damaged ligament isn't the same collagen. It's a different type of soft tissue. It doesn't have the same elasticity it once had. So I always tell people, get checked out. First and foremost, you want to make sure you, you don't have a fracture. 
because sometimes a severe ankle sprain and a fib distal fibular fracture can kind of produce the same symptoms. So you may think, oh, this is just a severe ankle sprain. I'm just going to take it easy for the next couple of days. Whereas if you were get an x-ray and notice there was an actual fracture, your rehab is way different. Your road to recovery is way different as well. So if you're really serious about your craft or just your health in general, you should always see a doctor regardless of the severity of the sprain. As far as bread and butter, I rarely tend to take acute ankle injuries for surgery. Uh, the ATFL, which is one of the ankle ligaments on the outside of your foot or ankle, is very weak and tends to get injured amongst everybody. Everybody's going to sprain it or injure it at some point in their life. So I tend to do what's uh, functional rehabilitation. I'll immobilize them for the acute phase period. Once they're ready, I'll transition them to a brace. And during the transition period, they're already in physical therapy, working on swelling control, passive range of motion, and so forth. And once they regain the strength that they need to advance to active range of motion, I'll tell the physical therapist, leave that at your discretion. And then the last but not least is what we call proprioceptive training, which is to me, the most advanced level of rehab for an ankle sprain. And I want to make sure that the patient does this prior to returning to physical activities, because then I'll feel more confident that not only is your ankle back to the way it was, but it may be stronger. And this extra training will help prevent any re-injury to the area. What are we talking for most? Like taking two, three weeks off of basketball or? every. So everybody varies. Everybody varies. And again, you know, grading from one to three tends to be a clinical diagnosis. Most people won't get an MRI in the acute phase of an ankle injury because the MRI is very sensitive and will overread the injury, correct? Mm -hmm. So if I punch the wall and get an MRI and give the radiologist no history, he'll just see a bunch of inflamed bones and tissues and say, oh my God, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's osteomyelitis. Maybe it's some, some sort of crazy, uh, cancer or tumor. Because it's so sensitive, that's Especially the reality. Foot. Uh, yeah, exactly. So if you if someone sprains the ankle and you get an MRI, you're kind of doing them an injustice right away. And most most medical research or clinicians will advise not to get an MRI up until eight weeks, uh, because the initiation of treatment tends to be the same. If you look at Lonzo Ball from the Los Angeles Lakers, he was diagnosed with a grade uh, three ankle sprain, which is a complete rupture of the ligament. Oh. What did they do? I mean, this is a top notch athlete. They put him in a boot. Because they understand that, you know, we're not going to go jump to surgery for this right away. So that depends. So you're, to your question, it varies from patient to patient. If the patient is doing well, seven days immobilization, I'm already starting them in PT, uh, advancing them to a brace. If by two to three weeks they're already uh, at the proprioceptive level that I, I want them to be, then sure, they could slowly get back into sports. But I tell patients sometimes, you know, it may be three months before I can fully clear you. And on one of Lonzo Ball's teammates, Kyle Kuzma, I believe, had an ankle sprain. And he, oh no, it wasn't it, Kyle, I'm sorry. It was um, the kid who won the dunk contest, Zach Levine. He had a, a severe ankle sprain and he was out four to six weeks. So when my young athletes come here, I use that as an example. Like this is a top-notch athlete who gets the best care possible, has all the resources he needs to heal. And they're taking him out of commission four to six weeks. So that's that's the highest level of trainers and doctors telling him, hey, we want you at your most optimal level before we get you back into sports. And I use that example to tell my patients, like if, if they can take four to six weeks off, you have to do that as well, especially if you want a long career. Uh, it's a difficult yeah. talk to sometimes have because they're eager to get back into sports. 
But the reality is you have to kind of brace them. You have to show them you care. Like, you know, I could get you back into sports, but what's the point if you go out there and re-injure yourself? Uh, did I really do justice? Yeah, especially like senior year. Yeah, exactly. You know, did I really do you justice by sending you out there? Could you have done anything for LeBron groin injury? It's kind of up the leg from you guys, but sometimes there's like that cross between like, yeah, but we could actually work on it. Like, could you have done anything for his groin injury? No, no, that's way out of my scope. I mean, there's no, yeah, there's no pretending I'm going to even treat. I mean, soft tissue tends to have the same principles, regardless if it's in the foot or the hand in terms of healing and the length of healing. But with respect to rehab and all that, that's way different realms. So, yeah, if he came to my clinic for that, I'd send them right back. Okay. Y'all work pretty much up to the, through the calf, right? Like the knee. Yeah, so up till the tibial tuberosity in some states. Uh, some other states will let you do soft tissue to the hip. I think Florida is one of them. In New York, unfortunately, they let you do up to the ankle, and then you have to apply for special privileges to get soft tissue uh, ankle privileges, and then you have to apply again for doing ankle fractures. So again, it's just that, that constant really? fight between orthopedia and podiatry. They're so like, yo, ankle is not the foot. Sorry. Yeah, they're making it very difficult, which is is frustrating for me because believe it or not, uh, ankle fractures tend to be my specialty as far as my training is concerned. Uh, but that doesn't matter. Well, I'm thinking that's all part of the whole thing. I'm thinking, you know, the gastroc, the Achilles attaches, and then, you know, the, the like you said, the distal tib and fib. Like that all to me makes sense that that would all be part of classic podiatry sure. foot and ankle. Yeah. That's wild. New York, y'all like something else over yeah, there Yeah, I mean, you got to remember, we have a hospital for special surgery here, and that's probably the number one orthopedics group in the world. Forget the country. We're talking about the world. I mean, they're world-renowned. For them, the idea of uh, these podiatrists coming in and possibly taking some of their cases, it doesn't sit well with them, right? So it's just, believe there's politics of medicine, too. It's not just uh, everything else, but... You know, as a chiropractor, it makes me happy, too, to see that we're not the only ones that they're after. <laughs> they're always after somebody. No, no. And I think any subspecialty or any specialist, uh, they're after. Everyone's going to get it somehow or some way or another. Yeah. So, yeah, no, we're, we're in the same fight, believe me. All right, so we'll switch gears a little bit. We'd like to ask about younger people, people maybe that are, you know, coming into college or maybe they're about to start their residency program in podiatry. Any words of wisdom that can help them if they're struggling or just need to uh, find a way to get through it? Yeah, you know, I've said this before in other other interviews. Why I admire doctors isn't the, the white coat or the title or any of that. I admire doctors because if you really look at what they had to do to get to their point, to be able to juggle life, studying, and so forth, it's, it can be difficult at times. And whoever's listening to this, I hope they know they're, they're definitely not alone. Uh, everybody has their own struggles throughout uh, college, medical school, even residency. I, I was I was fortunate enough to be with an amazing group of classmates uh, who I now can call colleagues, and I, I've seen them go through difficult things. You know, people having uh, the birth of their children during schooling, people who had to be single parents during schooling, people who were literally going through divorces during finals week. For them to overcome that and go through it and finish, uh, I was truly proud of everyone there. So if you're a college student or a medical student and you're going through, you know, tough times, just know you're not alone, really. You're, you're truly not alone. And you have to find your support base to help get you through that, um, whether it be your classmates, whether it be friends back home or your family. There has to be someone in your life that will help you get through these hurdles. 
it's 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 tough. People overlook that. I think it's becoming a topic of discussion now with physician burnout. But for the longest time, I think it was neglected in the medical world. And I'm glad it's it's becoming to shed some light on the area. When in the most schools have some sort of counselor, I'm not saying they're gonna be great, but it's just somebody to talk to and like you said, they might have some resources like a group or something to truly help you out. And you know, it's interesting you mentioned burnout. I don't know if it's the feed that I've been on and feed on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. It seems to be popular right now. I don't know what's going on, but that buzzword just keeps popping up over the last week and a half. It's very pop. So mental health is becoming more popular, right? Mental health is becoming a thing. People are acknowledging it as a serious condition and it should not be ignored. Whereas when I was in high school or, or junior high, I, I didn't even know that term existed. Uh, and you look at some of the things they talk about and I'm sure everybody can relate to some aspects of it. So now people are using that mental health awareness and shedding light in the medical world. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of suicide that happened to medical professionals. Yeah, they don't talk about uh, that. I think dentistry has that. Yeah, yeah, we won't talk about that. But uh, I'm just saying it, it's real. It happens. Yeah, I mean, they just don't talk about it. We could talk about it. But in general, like, we don't hear about it. And maybe dentists, but that's oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought we couldn't talk about it. But but it happens. It really happens. And it's sad to see it because at, at some point in your schooling career or uh, residency training, whether it be a, a patient or a fellow resident or an attending just really badgering you and making your life more difficult than it needs to be, you kind of sympathize with people who go through physician burnout. Uh, I can't imagine one physician saying, you know, I didn't have moments where I thought about quitting. Uh, everybody goes through that phase. So my, my big MO for anyone listening who is experiencing some of these symptoms, just know it happens to the best of us. Uh, it's easy to get caught up and look at accolades and be like, wow, you graduated tops in your class or you have these researchers and you seem like you're doing well for yourself. There are times where I, I would sit down and question, is this for me all the time? All the time, you know, you just sit there and you wonder, am I doing the right thing? Uh, am I made, made out for this? Am I built for this? For me, luckily, I had an amazing uh, mother who helped get me through certain times of that doubt. But again, it would be my best advice that to find someone, really find someone you could lean on in those times of need. No, I mean, I completely agree. I can remember that first year when we're going through all the bones and ligaments and muscles and nerves and, you know, you get to something like the foot, you're just like, oh, are you kidding me? There's so much in here. And then you start getting overwhelmed and you're like, all right, yeah. is this, can I do this? Like, is, this is just the first, you know what I mean? The first class or the <laughs> second, you know, semester and stuff. And you're like, I'm going to get through. It's just going to get worse. Right. You get in a study group and you start yeah. flashcarding each other and you're yeah. like, okay, okay, okay. Bite sizes. We can do this. And some stuff you don't learn the first time around with the next class, yeah. you're like, oh, here we are again with the with the biomechanics of walking. All right. Now i got to review these things. And it's easier the second time. And by the time yeah. you finally finish, you're like, hey, I got this. It's good. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's I, the only reason I laugh, not to belittle anybody going through that. I laugh because it is so true. It, it really is. And it's unfortunate because the, the schooling curriculum in most medical professions, they tend to be toughest. And I hope you could chime in on this. The first few years. So even though you were a great student in college and you've gotten all these uh, academic achievements, uh, the first two years are a big punch in the face or a slap in, in the face of reality. You lose classmates. They disappear. You're like, what happened to that person? They're like, oh, he quit. You're like, oh, I was yeah, quiet. Yeah. yeah, we lost 25% of our, cl our classmates. We started off 120. Mm -hmm. I think we graduated maybe 90. Uh, yeah, and it's a, it's a big slap in the face. But I don't know if things tend to get easier or you just 
tend to know how to approach things differently, but as time goes on, you, you get that feel of things and things get better. And I know it's cliche to tell someone who's a first year medical student, just hang in there, it'll get better. But it really does. It really, really does. You just have to figure it out. You figure out a study pattern. You figure out a nice group of people. Uh, you'll figure out all of it. You know, for some people, they figure out different things. For, for me personally, I figured out that I had to dedicate more time to studying than others. Uh, while people went out and, you know, socialized and whatnot, I was in the library the first two years in my schooling career because I just knew I had to read an assignment more time than some of my peers. Uh, I had this one classmate who would sit in the front, take notes. She would review them the day before the test and she would be okay. And I, it's easy to say, oh, why can't I be like that? But I knew myself and I said, no, I'm the type that I have to read something 17, 20 times. And that's what I did. And, and you figure it out. You figure it out very quickly. Uh, who you are and what your capabilities are and what your limitations are. So that, it, it, it's a struggle in itself to find out uh, how you're going to approach the exam, let alone just memorize the material. Yeah. Right? And the nice thing is the person, the class ahead of you, you can always talk to them like, all right, what, you know, that's what we always did. All right, what classes do we need to focus on like every day? You know, because there's certain classes you're like, it's yeah. a hard class, but it's yeah. not as hard as this one. So I need to make sure I spend more time on this one because... The material is harder, the testing is harder. And so you sort of have to prioritize what gets your attention more too. Yeah, I was never, you know, it, it, it kind of weirds me out a little bit. I was never ashamed of asking for help ever. I still ask for help to this day. I, I still call the people who train me or, or a couple of kids who are older than me and, and run, run a couple of cases by them. Uh, you should never feel belittled for reaching out to someone. It, it's part of it. I mean, in the medical world, you almost have to, right? So medicine is a never-ending learning world. You're constantly learning. Research changes all the time. So this day, the, the doctor who practices with me, who work in, in his practice, he's 35 years older than me. But the research I know now wasn't applicable to his time. So he has no shame in asking me for my opinion. And if someone can ask his younger uh, of 35 years for help, who am I to be ashamed to ask someone a little older than me for help or younger? And that, you said it perfectly. Ask someone above you what they're doing. Maybe someone in class is doing really well. Go up to them and ask them, you know, hey, you know, I, I notice you're killing these exams. Uh, how are you doing this? Uh, some people are, are kind of uh, gunners and they won't tell you, but some people are very open and they'll say, yeah, this is my approach to things. And again, you'll figure it out. The, the key is to figure it out uh, in time to pass the exams or, or do well in tests. Agreed. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit more. You may not have to deal with this, but you may. Marketing. Do any actual marketing to your community or marketing yourself to other orthopedics if you are doing it? What tends to be working? A billion percent. A billion percent. A billion. One billion percent. You know, one of my biggest uh, disappointments so far, seven months out of residency, is I'm starting to realize my credentials get me so far. So, you know, and this isn't my ego. I, I really thought my training and my resume and my research would just you know, knock people out of the park. I would be like, oh man, I'm going to get in. People are going to see I'm well equipped and trained. And I'm starting to realize that doesn't matter. It's really marketing, marketing, marketing. They want the person with the best reviews, whether it be online, on Google, on Zocac, whatever it may be. They want the person who's well-spoken and so forth. So I've, I've, you have to adapt. I hate to say it. I'd love to be the guy who just takes his time and lets people realize, oh, he's a good doctor and word of mouth will work. But you have to adapt to the times. And so I, I started doing the same. You know, I, I got on online platforms. Uh, the Instagram handle I have, I started when I started practice because I realized that has to be a big tool. And then old school, I, I take a gift and my 
business cards with me and I go to various clinics and urgent care centers and I just introduce myself. Most of these people, they already have referral bases that they send their people to, but maybe in the time of need, they'll have me in their back of their mind. As far as what's been most effective, effective is definitely the online presence. Having the online presence is definitely crucial. Uh, a majority of my patients' referral at this point, uh, they state that their number one reason for coming was from the website. So we put a lot of money into the website and advertisement and so forth. But marketing is crucial, especially if you want to make it, at least here in New York, where it's a city, either you make it or you don't. You know, you don't find many people just getting by here. Either you really made it or you're really struggling. Are you noticing on the Instagram if you do, because I don't think you're doing it yet, before and after or 30 second clips of some surgery that you do? Have you looked into doing that or what's... So I have some before and after, but I only put x-rays. I, I want to, maybe I should get into it because I'm starting to realize a lot of competitors, that's what they do. They'll put before and after. I mean, they'll have 20, 30,000 fans. It's like, whoa, 200,000. You're like, yeah. people just like gory stuff, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I got to agree with you. So some of the biggest, most popular uh, podiatry videos are of clipping toenails. And uh, that, that is interesting to me, you know. I saw them um, get their, their toe chopped off. I was like, ah, so that's what that looks yeah. like. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. 30 yeah. seconds of later, my life has changed. <laughs> so, yeah, so I have, to, I have to be careful with my answer here because I don't know what the future brings as far as what I'm going to do. For now, I, my intention with Instagram was to just uh, keep it academic, keep it personal. So it's a balance of everything, whether it be research, surgery, uh, facts, and personal life. And uh, it's a slow growth, I'm not going to lie, but... I just, I just can't see myself doing certain things that is being put out there at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep my integrity as, as far as I go. Okay, so I'm curious because you know chiropractors, we're getting some of these video people on YouTube, and sometimes I have these ladies with not much clothes on getting adjusted, and mm-hmm. or they have like some little real sensational type of adjustment, and you're like, oh, could y'all please put those down? I know you're getting a million views and you're making money and stuff, but it's making the rest yeah. of us cringe. Um, is that kind of what these types of Instagram accounts are doing? So I, I, I don't want to be that guy, right? Because I, I'll never throw a colleague on the bus uh, to each their okay. own, right? If that's if that's what they feel like, it's controversial. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I'm not going to sit here and argue with that, but to each their own. Mm-hmm. You know, if they feel like that's what they need to get their name out there and drive in business through the door and get some publicity. By all means, go for it. Um, I just don't want to fall into that trap. And I, I think what happens is you notice how many views or how much publicity you're getting with these kind of videos. So you tend to just do what works for you. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just I don't see myself at any point doing that right now. You know, it, it's the same with uh, a lot of different professions, whether it be pediatry or primary care physicians. You know, there's some. Uh, the other day, I saw a a resident, a resident, a primary care resident, uh, selling dermatology products. And in my head, I'm thinking, who, who qualified you to do that? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't, you haven't gotten through residency yet, let alone be a dermatologist. Uh, you're not even in a dermatology residency. So why, why, who are you to sell that? But you know, the public sees his, his or her pictures and they feel confident in this patient and this person and they go for it. It is a scary world, right? Uh, what you put out there. And again, it's a, it's a little disappointing to my first thing because I think people should really dwell on the 
qualifications a, a physician has, not the the pictures or the nice clothes or the car or whatever they're putting out there. It should really be academia and credentials and so forth. So it, it's, it's, social media is weird. I don't want to be a pessimist about it, but I never had social media. I, I genuinely never had it ever. I never had Facebook. I still don't have Facebook. I, I think it gives a false perception of what's really out there. But as far as social, as far as Instagram, I, I just felt like I had to adapt to current times. Uh, I didn't want to fall victim to not using this platform. Too far out there. Yeah, and I'm hoping to use the platform correctly, I think. There's a lot of physical therapists. I follow a lot of physical therapists. If you look at my page, uh, most of my followers are physical therapists. Um, because there's a lot of physical therapists who put respectable content out there from rehab, rehab to vital information and whatnot. Are there some physical therapists that do exactly what you said? Get a, a half-naked woman out there working out her glutes? Sure, there, there, there's some that are out there, but it's a balance, yeah. and I'm not sure which one will prevail in the end. But you have to find out what you want to do and how you want to promote yourself. And for me, academia has always been my top priority. So when someone goes through my page, I hope they realize, oh, this is an academic page with a, a touch of personal attributes. Yeah. It was like people like the prehab guys, their page is mm-hmm. just phenomenal. And I'm just like, I wish I had the patience and the desire to build that type of Instagram because mm-hmm. it's just so good. They're so good. I'm sure they're super busy. And money, right? <laughs> you need money. These, these guys, so I worked with one physical therapist. We did like a collaboration talking about different uh, foot and ankle pathologies. Uh, and he had his own like, person doing video camera and managing social media and editing it. It's, it's an investment. But this, he hired an outsourced person to do this. Ah. So it's not just patience and time. Cause, you know, it's going to take a while for you to build your base, but it's an investment as well. You're putting money into this. And they're doing it nice. It's not like thrown together like I would probably do it. They're, they're spending extra <laughs> a lot of time editing. So yeah, they're paying, they're spending some money. Oh, sure. Yeah, they're spending some money. Don't, don't be fooled. They take a lot of time and effort and money to making these videos happen for them. So for me, as someone who sees how difficult it is, I tend to appreciate someone who does that. And that's why a lot of, a lot of people I follow uh, I have admiration for them because, again, we, we just said it, it takes time, patience, and money. Uh, you're going to be putting out these videos and notice you're not getting any clickbait clickbait away. And you have to be persistent about it. Like, no, I believe in my content. I believe in my brand. And I'm just going to wait until it gets there. Very good. Have you thought about starting your own academia-style podcast or anything like that? You know, I, I, I wish. I wish I, I should. Uh, there's a lot of ideas in my head. I'm starting a blog, which I'm currently doing now, uh, and it's finishing uh, moments to a podcast to just like yourself, hopefully being an author one day. Uh, but my cousin, he, he, he balances me. He always says, Muhammad, the best thing you can do is set realistic expectations and then approach them one by one. So I, I hate to get caught up in doing too many things at one time. Yeah. So I'm trying to take things one step at a time. I think my blog is going to be my first step. Can I get some people off the blog, some traction? Is it gaining some views? Are people actually clicking it, reading it? If that tends to work, then we'll move forward to a different venue. As far as a, a podiatric or foot and ankle podcast, I think that would be uh, beneficial to the public. I think the foot and ankle is often neglected. And if you can raise awareness about how to prevent injuries or certain conditions or talk about the effect certain uh, diseases or conditions like diabetes has on the foot and ankle, People could benefit from such a, a talk or a podcast. But yeah, I, I would love to do something like that. But 
just to repeat what I'm saying, I'm trying to keep realistic expectations and attack these things uh, one step at a time. You know, the experts are saying same thing if you're super like, I want to do a lot of social media. They're like, dude, don't go crazy. Learn this one, then step into the next one, then step into the next one. Otherwise, you're all they're all going to be garbage. <laughs> so it's kind of yeah, the same so, thing. So I, I agree. You know, you're putting 20% into each venue. Which one is actually going to succeed, right? So I, I agree. You know, I read a lot of books and uh, I read about these entrepreneurs and how they've done it. And it's the same way, like you said, like wake up early, you know, catch up on your news and then perfect your craft. So for now, my craft is going to be in my clinic, trying to promote it through social media. And then my next step is through the blog. And once the blog is perfected, and I can take years. I'm, I'm well aware that that's not going to just blow up over months. You're young. Right? you got time. So, yeah. So uh, patience is, is key, I think, in this point. And I think a lot of things that people fall victim to or trapped to, and myself included, is comparing yourself to different colleagues. Yep. Uh, you compare yourself and you're like, man, why, why am I not like that? Why am I not getting the same number of views or followers? My content is exceptional. Or, or should I start posting pictures with, uh, you know, provocative things? Uh, you know, you start to question your whole tactic or, or plan. But You got to remember, you have 150 photos. This person might have 1,500. I don't know how much they post a day, but that's a lot more time invested. Yeah, a lot of people say that, you know, you should post more, you should do this. But the, the reality of it is, it's, again, like you said, you have to appreciate what they're doing because it is time consuming. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some of these uh, fitness models, right? That's a big thing on Instagram. They're, they're going out there. They're going to Central Park, Bryant Park. They're going to different areas. They're bringing their own photographer. They're charging them $350 a, a session and all that for four posts. You know, they'll get four posts from that from that session. So they're putting a lot of time, effort, and again, money into this. So don't think this is the rise to fame on social media is uh, by accident. Sure, do people go viral? Sure. But in the medical field, that's that's not really common. No. no. Hey, before... Before I jump into the uh, the last bit of the you know the personal stuff, I almost yeah. forgot to ask you. Uh, we were talking pre-chat. I was asking you about your favorite shoe, and you're kind of like Asics. It's kind of a nice place to start because they have the different styles. You know, supination, pronation, neutral. Yeah. yeah. So that answers that question. But barefoot running, you know, there's a uh, Vibram shoes, the toe shoes. That was really cool for a while, and then I I think research came out. Yeah, it's not actually doing anything. Just buy some normal shoes. But you're the mm -hmm. expert. What's the final verdict on this? Yes, I just did a like in-depth conversation uh, about this topic, and uh, my direct messages on Instagram were filled with people who just wanted to destroy me. But the reality of it is, I, everything I do is research-based medicine. I, it's hard for me to give someone medical advice without the research to back it up. And just like you said, the, the research overwhelmingly—I don't want to say it's like fair or unfair—overwhelmingly cautions against minimalist-style shoes. Uh, there are some positive directions that minimalist style shoes are headed towards, but uh, at this time, at this time, if a patient were to walk in and say, hey, what do you think about me transitioning to minimalism shoes? I would say, listen, be cautious, and if you're going to do so, you have to do it very slowly, and you have to up the pace progressively, right? So you can't sit there and, and just run your normal five miles in the Vibrams. Maybe you should run a uh, half a mile in them, right? And then over a 10-week period, increase that slowly. Because the reality is if you go too fast, research has shown this. You know, I could send anyone the articles they, if they'd like to see it. But uh, if you transition too fast to minimalist-style shoes or barefoot running, 
you are more prone to certain things like stress fractures and tendonitis and plantar fascial ruptures and so forth. So you want to avoid that. Now, does barefoot training and barefoot running have its pros? Of course it has its pros. I'm not going to sit here and say it's all bad. No, some of it is good, you know, from the increase in strength of the intrinsic muscles, from your increased proprioceptive uh, sense. Uh, there are definitely pros to barefoot running and training. What I'm trying to get at is everything in moderation. If that's something you believe in and it's working for you, don't just jump right into it. Uh, have some uh, method into doing so. But as far as, hey, Dr. Muhammad, can you go out there and recommend it right now? With the current uh, evidence out there, I can't. I'm sorry. You know, and I know to eat his own, and if that works for you, then I'm happy for you. I'm not going to sit here and go back and forth. But if I were to tell someone, yeah, sure, go into minimalist shoes, and they come back two weeks with a stress fracture, whose fault is that? You know, and I, I don't want to bear that responsibility at this point. But it's becoming a big, big uh, topic of debate, and it's been so for a few years. Now, this isn't new, but it's it's gaining traction now because uh, it's an industry. I hate to say it, so it's become an industry. I think even, correct me if I'm wrong, I think even Nike's looking into their own form of minimalist shoes at some point. Uh, it's it's a huge industry, and people are just going to try to get their hands into it. But as far as yep, the, follow the book, yeah, as far as the evidence is concerned, until like I see a, a, a robust controlled study with two levels of groups, one minimalist, one sneaker training, that shows either similar results or beneficial results to the minimalist group, it's going to be hard for me to jump on board at this time. And I, and I say that cautiously because the medicine changes. So what's right now can be wrong 20 years later but for now i have to stick with what's uh proven in the presence you know patients here they work a lot in the farm and things and they'll come in they got back pain and you get two types one oh my back hurts so bad and they got these high heel type things on i'm like come on or normally what it is is they're wearing those plastic house slippers that you might wear in the shower and they wear those everywhere all over the place sandals all day long and i'm like hey you know you should probably go out and buy, and we don't have Nike, they got like Leaning and Antas, they're big, the big ones here. It's like, you should go out and buy one of those. No, no, don't go spend 60 RMB for the lookalike fake ones that are all over the place. You need to spend mm-hmm. three to 600 RMB, get yourself a pair of shoes. And for some of these people, I'm like, I think your nagging back pain and your knee pain is just going to go away when you actually wear like proper shoes most of the day. And it's simple. And just somebody needs to tell them that. And they're like, oh, okay. And then. A hundred, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Some of our biggest referral bases are from chiropractors. It's not like, it's not absurd. I get a lot of patients from chiropractors who they've been working on this patient's back for a number of weeks. And they say, you know what? Can I, can I send you to a podiatrist? And the patient's a little taken off guard, a podiatrist. Why why would you send me to a podiatrist? My back hurts, doc. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, but it's well known that limb length discrepancy, uh, causes compensation, which then in effect can affect your proximal st- structures. And, uh, proper footwear is instrumental in preventing that. So, yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And the busiest season for us, as far as like foot pathology in terms of, you know, plantar fasciitis or structural issues, we're not talking about like crazy accidents, because that would be the winter time, but the summertime is like, I'm, I'm filled with plantar fasciitis, tendonitis, and so forth. And the reason is every everybody wears flats and flip flops, uh-huh. which uh, are probably worse than barefoot. In my this opinion, this is horrible. You know, if you're, if you're gonna do that, you might as well. Yeah, you might as well go for barefoot. Forget about offering no support. In some aspects, it's detrimental support. But, you know, in terms of flats, a two-inch heel or a two-inch wide heel will probably do you more justice than wearing flats. There we go. You heard it. You heard it here first. 
All right, I'm not going to ask you about vacation. You just started um, working hard, and so we'll skip that one. But we still need to have a home life balance, your own hobbies. I think you have a son, right? No, I don't have a no, son. You don't. So that is, that is my little cousin. Oh, my little okay. cousin on, on the Instagram. He's a cutie, but he looks like me. Yeah, he did. I was like, y'all got the same kind of long face. He's a cutie pie, and he's a troublemaker. So everything was just like me. So I love the kid. Okay. But that is not my son. I have no kids at the moment. But I think back to your point, I think we touched on this a little bit with physician burnout, right? Um, and that home life, ba- home life balance is crucial. And for me, that balance was uh, my friends. So my friends growing up, we grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, a majority of them didn't pursue the medical field. They were in different ventures. And for every time I came back home and would cry to them or tell them about my test, it's, I know this sounds awful, but it helped that they belittled my situation. <laughs> it, it did. No, and it, it, that sounds weird, right? Because you want someone to say, hey, you're going to make it. But sometimes you need some of that tough love. And my cousin was very, I mean, this kid was ruthless. And I used to tell him, you know, I think I really bombed this test. And he said, Muhammad, I've known you for 20 years. You say you bomb every test and then you graduate top of the class. I'm not going to listen to this anymore. And that's it. The conversation ends. Uh, and it, it kind of, you know what I mean? So sometimes it helps for someone to say, hey, listen, you're going to be okay. Or, you know, hey, you know, there are far worse things that can happen than this test. You'll be all right. Um, so for me, that's that's where the balance was. But I, I think it's really instrumental that you have that balance, especially in residency, because residency, you get so caught up in the gruesome hours that you never think to have time to yourself. You know, um, you just work, work, work. You go home, sleep. When you have a day off, you just do a sleeping or laundry or whatever it may be. But if you can squeeze a couple of hours to go out with your friends, uh, get a drink, make sure you catch up on the time, something that you enjoy. Uh, you should do so. It's really important. Otherwise, you, you're just a robot, right? And you, eventually, you're going to... It really makes you wonder yeah. how somebody has kids and a strong marriage during that time That's frame. That's why I told you I admire I admire it. You know, I was in school. I had nothing. I had no responsibilities. <laughs> you know, and it was still yeah. tough. Really, it was still tough. You know, I had a I had an amazing family. My parents, uh, I lived with my parents. Uh, my mom always took care of me when I got home. She did my laundry, cooked for me the whole nine yards. I was still like, this is tough. So I can't imagine being a, a med student and going home and you have to take care of your kids and your wife. It's tough. And that's why I really admire them, you know. And I had this graduation speech when we graduated med school. And I, I, I made that a point. That was my biggest point in my speech was, you know, everyone gets caught up in GPAs and awards and academic achievements. But just getting to this point is should be an achievement enough. Uh, and being on the other side of residency and you're looking at these kids' resumes and you're like, oh, yeah, get rid of his. He has a low GPA. To me, a man with a family or a woman raising kids by herself or with a family going to school and getting, let's say, a 3.0 in comparison to someone like me who really didn't have much to, to really have responsibilities for and gets a 3.7, I don't think they should be weighed any differently. To me, to me personally. Well, in fact, because to, for her, they might have more balance. Yeah, for them to have a 3.0, I'm sure it took much more work than to me to get to 3.7 because honestly, I had nothing but time. I, I used to go to a library. I would read for hours. I would study. I would repeat. I didn't have to change diapers. I didn't have to cook. I didn't have to do anything. I think we should start thinking about those things when we look at credentials or interviewing people for jobs or residency placement and so forth. Because as you know, residency placements, all they do is look at your GPA, your resume, your CV, your academic accomplishments, your extracurriculars, 
And that's what they base everything on. Mm-hmm. But in reality, they have no idea what you, it took for someone like you to get to this point. And, and I can see their point, too. They're like, well, you were distracted. Maybe you're not as good as the guy that didn't have anything else to do. So that's why we only want the best, because we know they can put out the best and put the most effort. But I can't really, like you said, I'm with you on that one. Uh, it's worth weighing the different scenarios. And that's why you get interviewed, hopefully, as well. And you can really narrow it down like a little bit better based on like, oh, this person's more of a human. <laughs> He's got more going on. He's yeah, like, anyway. yeah. All right, last last little bit here. You got any um favorite books, blogs, or podcasts that you secretly love or you think other people should definitely check out? Although I've never met this this man, I had a chance to and unfortunately I was stuck in surgery. He came to my uh hospital one day to do like a, a book signing and a uh just a little lecture and I was caught up in surgery. I was so upset with me. I'm a big fan of Atul Gawande. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. I think, but I don't remember. Yeah, Atul Gawande is a very, very knowledgeable uh, doctor, and he has written a series of books, and all his books are like my favorite. <laughs> so if you if you ask me what are your favorite books, I, I just say anything he wrote. Um, Being Mortal is probably my most favorite of his series, and if he ever hears this, I would love to meet him and just chat with him. Being Mortal was definitely hit home for me. Uh, he was just talking about his parents and you know, he talks about things that is very relatable in the medical field. But he mentioned one aspect. When you're a surgeon in training, you get upset with the attending if he doesn't give you the blade. And I was like that. Mm-hmm. If any attending ever did surgery with me, they could vouch that when it was time for surgery, I sat in the front of the table. Because I just assumed you're going to give me the knife. Like, that's it. I'm here to train. I, I want the knife. And, you know, 75% of the time that worked because the attending would be like, okay, I guess uh, give him a knife, you know. But he mentioned that once you become a doctor and you have a family member that needs surgery, the first thing you say is you better not let that resident touch my family, you know. So it's, it's kind of hypocritical at that sense. Um, and uh, just the various other things he talks about uh, that are extremely relatable to the medical field. So. Uh, if anyone ever is interested in the med field and seeing it, I, I get no publicity for this. I've never met him, but Atul Gawande's books are really inspiring to me. You know, it's funny. We had this t- a conversation with somebody off the air, and it was kind of what you're talking about. When I go see a doctor, I'm paying this money to see the doctor, not the physician's assistant. No offense to the PAs, but, you know, just that, that's the mentality that some people have or they've had a bad experience. And you're like, no, I'm, I want to see the MD. I want to see the podiatrist, yeah. not this second tier person and it's the same thing in residency you're like wait they're training nah this is me and my surgery i want the good guy (laughs) so some of things don't go to that hospital Yeah, which is which is crazy i hate to say this but but believe it or not there are certain type times in residency where the resident is more equipped for a certain case than the attending and that's scary right that's scary to hear but there i promise you there are certain times where you probably would prefer the resident with the the blade in their hands and that's that's scary to think of, but there's a lot that go, goes on behind the scenes. And Atul Gawande, he talks about it a bunch of it in his books. Um, but that's definitely when you talk about you know my goals and what what I have for myself. Being an author is kind of what I want to do, and mimicking what he writes about is kind of what I want to do. And I know you're an author yourself, so maybe off the record you can give me some uh, opinions and advice. But uh, yeah, if if you're an aspiring med student or in residency and need a good book, I, I would highly recommend his series. And what is your website? How can people get in touch with you and follow up? Yeah, so my website is simple. It's just grandcentralfootcare.com. My Instagram handle is nycfootdoc. 
Uh, my email and uh, is attached there. And I always, I, I rarely never don't reply to someone. I mean, I always reply if there's an inquiry or a question or something you want to follow up on. I, I tend to be very religious about making sure I address everyone's needs. So if, if anything happens, feel free to contact. Dr. Muhammad Rimawi, thank you so much for uh, giving us a chat today and kind of going through a little bit more of the background and the, the new person's view on everything. And I really appreciate our, our back and forth. And I think you really brought some good information for people to think about today. So uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Another great interview has ended. As I always say, I hope you listened, critically think, and implement something so that your practice life, family life can improve this week. I want to hit you up with a few links today. If you'd like to know what the top episodes of 2018 and 2017 were, you can just go to .net slash top1718 and you can get a PDF of all those episodes. It's like 22 of them. If you're interested on any of the programs that I've actually been interviewed on, just go to .net slash as heard on. So play on as, as seen on, you know, so as heard on. If you didn't know, the Needless Acupuncture book sales page has been revamped so it looks a lot better. You know, sometimes when you look at a web page and it doesn't look like it's put together well, you're like, meh, I'm not sure about this thing. But it's been redone. looks better. And also, if you have an Android device and you're curious about it, you can actually now download the same five protocols, blueprints, if you will right there on your phone at the Needless Acupuncture app. And for less than $4, you can get the whole book on your phone from the Android Google Play store. So if you're interested, check that out. The electric acupuncture pen is still available at a great rate. You can get it on its own or as a package. So you can get the book, the e-pen, as well as the auricular points. Now, some of the things that I'm recommending, Blueberry Hosting, that's who I use. I really like them a lot. I'm not going to lie to you. Fiverr is where I get a lot of my music done, my logos. I don't know if you noticed on Facebook, I believe my picture is now a face with a bunch of words. I just saw that real quick. It was cheap. Yeah, why not? I'll try that for a little while. It's fun. A turtle pillow. It's a travel pillow. It actually has like an H-beam in it. So you can rest your neck and your chin on that. So you don't get like the chicken bob where you, you know, you're sleeping and boom, you wake up really fast. And you know, those, those U-shaped ones, I just don't think they work very well. So for me, it's worked really well. I've traveled know, 10 different countries with it. Across the pond, as they say. I really highly recommend that. If you're into instrument-assisted soft tissue manipulation, two options. You got Hawk Grips, so .NET slash Hawk Grips, and also .NET slash Edge. And you can get tools there as well. But they also have way more than just tools. They've got how to get to use Google Apps as your EMR. Uh, blood flow restriction cuffs. There's a lot of research on that device. And you can check that episode from the past. And you can get an automatic 10% discount on all the products from the edge mobility equipment. Uh, one of the devices I use to to send out snippets of the podcast via picture and uh, quotes from the text that I write from the show notes is Missing Letter. They just took out the last E in letter.com. Pretty much, you know, you can do a blast in, in two months, you know, like five of emails over two months. I like to do nine emails over 12 months. So that person who was interviewed last month doesn't just get lost, right? You know, so every day I have a new episode at a highlight and it's all automated. It's really cool. Definitely check it out. Uh, if you need to record your screen, I like Screencast-O-Matic. Also, JLab Audio Speakers. I've said it before. I love them. Uh, it's a great company. And now I get to actually be an affiliate for them. So if you end up buying any of their products, just like any of these, I get a little piece. I uh, probably have like three or four different products. I mean, they're just the battery lives are longer. The sounds quality is amazing. Uh, and for the price, it can't. Love it a bunch. And of course, in the show notes, anytime you see a book link, you buy it, it comes to me. And .net slash t-shirts will help us out. 
And lastly, again, something I don't talk about too much, but if you need coaching, whether it's via the Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health, you need some help with taking those small steps and accountability so that you can actually lose the weight or start exercising more or get your budget in order, just let me know. I can help with that. Also, if you just need some minor marketing coaching or things like that, I can help you out with that as well. Just go to .net slash support. And of course, on there, you can also buy the host a cup of coffee or uh, even more than that. There's different options available. So. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week or on the mini-sode. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.